So this is the Room Now podcast. It is September 16, 2022, and I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. A lot to cover this week, so let's get into the most important stuff from what happened on the website this past week. News-wise, the big news was the announcement by the FDA and the sponsor that Ducravacid, a TIC2 inhibitor, was approved for use in patients with plaque psoriasis. Moderate to severe plaque psoriasis, not responding to conventional therapy, not meant to be used with other therapies or combined with other immunosuppressives or other biologics. Ducravacitinib has looked good in clinical trials. The question is, is this a new class? Because that's the announcement. The announcement says that first in class, new drug for psoriasis, that being TIC2 inhibition. As you know, TIC2 is part of the Janus kinase family and considered by many to be yet another jack, if you will. But this designation says, nope, it's different. And that's also sort of backed up by the fact that unlike the other JAK inhibitors that are currently on the market, this particular drug does not come with a box warning. Last year, tofacitinib, apatacitinib, baricitinib all got box warnings for cancer risk, cardiovascular risk, and VTE risk as a result of the oral surveillance study. This drug did not. So that sort of says that that's how the FDA is considering this. Also different is that there's no call for ongoing laboratory monitoring of any kind, which means it'll probably have good uptake by the dermatologist. That's one of the main reasons why dermatologists fell in love with Aprimolas when it went on the market, where right now most of Aprimolas being used, I think in the United States, is, is being done by dermatologists rather than rheumatologists. But nonetheless, this is a new drug. Um, but is it new? Is it really a distinct new entity um, or new class? If you look at the safety profiles, it kind of looks like the JAKs. There's asymptomatic CK elevations, kind of the same numbers. Um, but there were a few cases of rhabdo in the dermatology clinical trials, whereas that's not been seen in rheumatology, to the best of my knowledge. There's LFT elevations, ALT and, um, and AST. Uh, threefold elevations or more of ALT seen 3.6 out of 100 patient years. Um, that's double the rate seen with the placebo drug. So they recommend that LFT should be monitored in patients who have pre-existing liver disease or those who demonstrate LFT elevations. There's a bump in triglycerides. I think about 10 points when you're taking this particular TIC2 inhibitor. And then shingles. Herpes zoster, the reporting rate here uh, in 16-week trials is 6.8 per 100 patient years. Folks, that's high. That's higher than was reported originally with tofacitinib, which was about 4.5 per 100 patient years, or 45 per 1,000. And this is 68 per 1,000 for so TIC2. So Ducravacitinib's new trade name is called to a TIC2. It's 6 milligrams once a day as an oral uh, medication. Um, you're supposed to get a TB test prior to starting the drug. No live vaccines. Don't combine it with other biologics. Look it up. Uh, it's being studied in IBD and in lupus and in patients with psoriatic arthritis. So we'll see more of this drug in the near future. The other big announcement this past week was the ACR releasing a preliminary report on the diagnosis and management of glucocorticoid-induced osteoporosis. As you know, um, there was a guideline in 2017 
But what's new about this guideline is has a, uh, it specifically addresses the issue of follow-up therapy or the sequential therapy after a drug can no longer be used. As you know, there was previously a limit to using teriparatide or abaloparatide, uh, and then also now romosuzumab. But the original limitations on teriparatide and abaloparatide had to do with a malignancy risk, mainly seen in animals. That's been sort of shown not to be true, although I don't think that the label has changed yet. Um, romosuzumab has a different reason, but after you take those drugs, you need to go on to denosumab. If you're on denosumab, you can't stop it, because if you stop it, then you get a rebound risk of vertebral fractures. So they, the new guideline, which is going to be published in Arthritis and Rheumatology sometime early 2023, I believe, um, says that with uh, initial therapy for patients with mild disease, you get an oral or IV bisphosphonate, followed by a CIRM, followed by either um, uh, teriparatide or abaloparatide, uh, and then after that, you use a bisphosphonate or denosumab. Or after that, you use another bisphosphonate. If you start out with a denosumab, after you use denosumab, you can go on to take a bisphosphonate. And then romosuzumab should be followed up with bisphosphonate therapy. So again, more on that is in the guideline uh, that's currently on the ACR website, on the RoomNow website, and is going to be in the, um, in the forthcoming publication. Patients with more severe disease, uh, it's recommended that uh, glucocorticoids be discontinued in the patients at high risk and that you continue therapy um, with um, whatever therapy you're using and then you can later on switch to bisphosphonate denosumab or the um, teriparatide-like therapies or romosuzumab. Uh, so that's, I think, the big news. I think the other nice report that I thought uh, a lot of this past week comes from Beth Wallace and her co-investigators at the University of Michigan, where they took part in a national poll of older adults over the age of 50, showing that 70% had self-reported arthritis. But if you get into the weeds on this, um, 60% said they had doctor diagnosed or HCP diagnosed arthritis with osteoarthritis being the main diagnosis at 30%, 8% osteo uh, rheumatoid arthritis, 7% with crystal induced arthritis and 5% with other forms. Most of these said that their symptoms were moderate to severe, but about half of them actually. Um, and that a third of them say that they, that it interfered with their day to day life. A lot of patients, as you might imagine, are taking over-the-counter medicines, two-thirds of patients, in fact, uh, supplements by oh, 25%, and so on and so forth. The interesting thing about this um, therapy is that when doctors did prescribe uh, biologics or steroids, they weren't always that good about discussing the side effects of these therapies with patients. So um, the point is that we, as providers, should be asking our patient about all the therapies they're taking including over-the-counter uh, pain relievers and supplements, and then also being a little bit more vigilant on counseling patients about the safety of these therapies. Uh, a few interesting reports this week about psoriasis and um, um, disease-related factors. So a nice cohort study of almost 250 patients showed that two-thirds of patients had a sleep disorder or poor sleep quality. That was more likely to be seen in women 
those who had higher joint counts, more so with peripheral disease than axial disease, and that most of the uh, um, poor sleep was linked to fatigue and anxiety, which is not surprising. But again, this is something that I don't know that all of us address really well. I've been like a dog on a bone about sleep ever since really literally the last 25 years. It's a question in my survey. I ask patients, do you have problems falling asleep? Do you have problems staying asleep? Why do you wake up? Can you go back to sleep? Do you wake up early? Do you wake up refreshed? Because each of those has an answer to which there's a therapeutic intervention or a lifestyle change that should be employed. Again, pay attention to sleep would be my advice. Um, a non-inferiority trial looked at patients with ankylosing spondylitis and psoriatic arthritis and looked at what happens when a TNF inhibitor is abruptly withdraw- withdrawn. So there's about 130 patients, I think, in this trial, and uh, ha- 81 of them had a, um, the no, 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 this is not the abrupt withdrawal. I'm sorry. This is the tapering by T2T. So again, about 120 patients. 80 or so um, have their, their, um, their TNF inhibitor withdrawn using a T2T strategy according to disease activity. So it's slowly withdrawn. Uh, and one-third just continued. And the question is, after 12 months, how are they doing? And it turns out that it's non-inferior, that if you were able to taper the TNF inhibitor down, you're still doing just as well, 69% are in LDA, low-dose activity, Versus those who continued where it was 73%, no significant difference. The patients who were tapered were basically taking half their previous dose. Those who continue were taking 91% of the original dose. The point being that if they're doing well, you can taper. Don't stop the therapy would be my, really, uh, the, the trial did allow for the patients to be taken off therapy, but really everybody was just tapered to that 50% level and some a little bit more, but generally that was the takeaway from this. A larger study from the Serena study of 530 PSA, 470 AS patients, looked at patients who abruptly stopped their secukinumab. So these patients were on therapy for an average of about 85 to 90 weeks. Um, And overall, about 6% of PSA patients and 9% of AS patients suddenly stopped their secukinumab. More than half of those were for an adverse event, and about 10% was the patient's decision, and that was a range of reasons why. So not surprisingly, upon stopping secukinumab, uh, there was an increase in tender joint count, swollen joint count, but that when the drug was restarted, they were able to recapture disease control with secukinumab in a fairly short order at a fairly high rate. So the guest says that, that there's a consequence to stopping your therapy, but that you can recapture therapy should that be a concern. Uh, you know, we scan a lot of different um, journals and, and uh, things that patients might read. And the Atlantic published a really nice article on brain fog. You know, it's a big complaint of uh, a lot of our patients, patients especially who have fibromyalgia and sleep problems, but it's a common problem with RA and PSA and whatnot. In this paper, they go into the many reasons for brain fog. They talk about it as a key feature to those who are currently experiencing the uh, long COVID symptoms. Uh, And again, I think it's a nice discussion that your patients may see. You may want to look at that uh, as well. Again, that appears in the journal called The Atlantic. 
vasculitis. We have two interesting vasculitis reports this week. Uh, a longitudinal study of over 500 patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis looked at outcomes according to what their serologies for ANCA did. And when they found patients who uh, were able to go seronegative on ANCA um, within 180 days of starting therapy, they showed that those patients were less likely to have a relapse, a 45% lower risk of relapse. While that sounds really, really good, the bad news is that it didn't change the really bad outcomes of either death or end-stage renal disease. So, And that's looking out as far as five years. My feeling is I, I, I follow ANCAs, um, but to me it's a little bit like double-stranded DNA and lupus. Meaning if you follow double-stranded DNA and lupus, there are some patients who are double-stranded DNA positive in whom effective therapy will lead to lowering, if not seronegativity, for double-stranded DNA. But it's a subset of patients. When you find it, fabulous, because now you have a great biomarker. The same is true, I believe, for ANCA. If you can follow ANCA and you see it responding and going down as the patient is responding, congratulations, you now have a biomarker. But if it's always positive, even though the patient's in remission, I don't worry anymore. I just know that I can't really rely on that. And again, this does say that you will have less relapses, and that's kind of a good thing. So... I think an interesting report. Mayo Clinic has been studying temporal artery biopsies since I was a fellow. Gene Hunter taught me about uh, temporal artery biopsies um, long, long ago. They have done an analysis of their patients from uh, 1994 to 2004, over um, 3,800 temporal artery biopsies performed in almost 2,500 patients. Um, and in 27% of patients, the biopsy was positive on the one side um, that it was done. Um, the interesting thing about this report is it is in contrast to what we were always taught that the biopsy needs to be three centimeters long. This re their results show that biopsy length had no impact on overall positivity. No impact. So... You don't have to get a gigantically long biopsy, you know, as long as, you know, you going from their ear up until their, head, the, their, their, their temporal lobe. Again, a, a well-done biopsy is really all you need. They also showed that if you were a negative on the first side, that you should then proceed to a second biopsy on the contralateral side. The diagnostic yield on that is an additional 7%. So is it worth it would be the question. Are their symptoms worth it? Do you need that biopsy to treat? I think the answer is always yes if you're seriously considering putting the patient on high-dose steroids and or an IL-6 inhibitor. But that's just me. Uh, a few lupus reports. We have three really good ones. Um, what happens to uh, immuno immunosuppressors, mainly mycophenolate or azathioprine, in lupus nephritis patients once they're stable? This is a study of 96 patients, almost 100 patients, who are taking either, uh, they were all on hydroxychloroquine, and they were either taking azathioprine or mycophenolate. And they saw what happened when they withdrew therapy. So after two years, again, they stay on hydroxychloroquine, they go off of the other immunosuppressive, the relapses occurred in 12.5% um, uh, if it was continued. And if it was discontinued, it was 27%. So about two and a half fold higher relapse rate if you stop the immunosuppressive in patients with lupus nephritis. My point is, 
why would you stop um, mycophenolate or azathioprine unless you had serious toxicity? If you have toxicity, go to the other one. But to stop, you know, um, and these are all proliferative uh, GN patients here. Um, I think this was a bad idea, but a smart study nonetheless. Um, and they said that this was not non-inferior. So meaning it was an imbalance in favor of more flares with discontinuation of the immunosuppressive. Uh, so there were, overall, if you continue the immunosuppressive, they all had even not only less flares, but less severe flares, both renal flares and extra renal flares. The Lumen Registry is a registry that looks at patients over time with lupus. Uh, in this particular study of 440 patients, they looked at basically health screening. They showed that a lot of things are done quite well in lupus patients, including um, breast cancer screening. But cervical cancer screening, not so, but not so much. 25% deficiency there. Um, but because lupus patients may be followed more closely, they were more likely to be monitored for hypertension, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. They were more likely to actually receive age-matched, um, against age-matched uh, controls, they're more likely to receive influenza and pneumococcal vaccinations. So, you know, we're doing a good job with lupus, but you can't, you know, be sure that the primary care is going to do these health screening things that need to be done. You need to double check that as well as, the, as their rheumatologist. And I like this report. We made a big deal out of this at ULAR, Georg Schett's group published uh, this week in Nature Medicine, their experience with CD19 CAR T-cell therapy. They, as you know, they treated five patients. They were young. They, they, were, they failed everything, and they were on multiple immunosuppressives. They were on steroids. They stopped all their immunosuppressives. They, um, they, were, they were sick when, this was, when it started. Their sleet eye scores were 16. That's really high. Um, they took their patient's T-cells, they transduced them um, uh, with a vector, and now they made these CD19 CAR T-cells. They did the single infusion in five patients. They all went into remission that lasted at least three months and, and, and was maintained for a median of eight months, even though in many uh, some of these patients, two out of the five, their B-cells started to reconstitute and rise. So this is really shockingly good therapy, but this is like an early phase too, uncontrolled, um, and this is really expensive therapy. I like that this exists. I don't know how this is going to be studied in the future, but I'm going to leave it to Dr. Shett to lead the way on this and to write more about this and to teach us what it, uh, what it means and how this can better inform uh, our therapy uh, in patients with lupus. So that's it for this week on the podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. Stay safe. We'll talk to you next week. Be good.